2: Hey, it's me, Jason Flom.
3: And I'm Lauren Bright-Pacheco.
4: So for any of my listeners who aren't already familiar with you, Lauren is the, I'm going to embarrass you now, the absolutely brilliant investigative journalist and the host of the wildly popular series. It started with Murder in Oregon, my favorite, then Murder in Illinois, incredible, and coming in January 2023 to the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts, Murder in Miami.
3: Well, I am am flattered by that. But you know, you are one of my idols, really, the work that you've done in the wrongful conviction space and judicial reform is just phenomenal. And wrongful conviction is one of my favorite podcasts. And congratulations to you guys for hitting now the milestone of 300 episodes. And that I mean, the fact that there are 300 of these cases of wrongfully convicted men and women who have suffered needlessly in prison for decades is just overwhelming.
4: Well, the fact is 300 isn't even the beginning of the top of the tip of the iceberg. There are tens of thousands of wrongfully convicted people. We are just telling some of the stories of some of the ones we know about, and they're outrageous. Every one blows my mind. And... You know, in order to help spread this word, I've asked some of the people I most admire, including some who are wrongfully convicted, some of the best attorneys in the country, criminal defense attorneys, and, of course, some of my favorite podcast hosts and journalists. And you, Lauren, were at the top of my list.
3: I, I really sincerely appreciate that vote of confidence. Um, but I have to say I was so... Appreciative um, and honored to get the chance to fill in for you, but to also have the opportunity to speak with Mark Shand and his attorney. It's an incredibly heartbreaking, moving, and
4: infuriating story. Well, you did a phenomenal job. I'm so excited to be able to present this to our audience. Please listen to this important episode of Wrongful Conviction.
3: Back in 1986, in Springfield, Massachusetts, the After Five nightclub was a place where a few shady characters liked to hang out. Two of them were the Stokes brothers, and on the night in question, they were outside selling cocaine. But that night, their cocaine deal went bad. A couple young guys approached the brothers and their two customers. One of them lunged for a gold chain, and a scuffle began. Someone pulled out a gun and started shooting. One of the customers, Anthony Cook, was shot in the shoulder and made it out alive. But an innocent bystander, Victoria Seymour, was killed. Witnesses to the shooting reported seeing a blue van with Connecticut plates. So, during their investigation, the Springfield cops reached out to the police in Hartford, Connecticut, looking for some leads. In a completely unprofessional investigation, the Hartford police landed on Mark Shand, a teenager who had recently moved into the city. On November 20, 1987, he was convicted of murder and sentenced to natural life in prison without the possibility of parole. This is Wrongful Conviction. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco. I'm a broadcast journalist and a podcaster. You may have listened to my shows Murder in Oregon and Murder in Illinois. Mark and John, I am so excited to be sitting in this chair, guest hosting for Jason, because I have to tell you, in my career, I've covered wrongful convictions and stories of corruptions, but this is such an insane story that I found myself screaming at my monitor while I was doing research for it. It's just unbelievable. So thank you both for speaking with me. I'd love you both to introduce yourselves. Mark, why don't you start?
5: Well, my name is Mark Shan. I am um, originally from, I was born in Queens, New York, raised in Queens. My father and my mom came here from Panama when they were pretty young. And, you know, I was basically raised in New York. My my dad relocated to Hartford, Connecticut area when I was very young. He was a small business owner. He had several small businesses Kind of make a long story short and get to the meat of it. I um, came up to help him with some of his small businesses. I was subsequently arrested, as you know, taken to Massachusetts. I was put on trial for a murder I had absolutely no involvement in. I was found guilty, sentenced to natural life without the eligibility of parole. And as you also know, I served 27 years in prison for a crime I didn't commit.
3: And John, you were instrumental in helping right this wrong.
6: Well, yes, I and my partner, Linda Thompson, and Linda is actually the one who first became involved in Mark's case. Linda and I are partners in a small firm of Thompson & Thompson in Springfield, Mass. I've been practicing law since 1974, Linda since 1976, so we're veterans. Linda became involved in Mark's trial when Mark's trial lawyer, consulted her about whether Mark should testify in his own defense. And so we were not directly involved in the trial, but we were present when the verdict was returned. And very shortly after that, we took over the case to do appeals and motions for a new trial. So we worked on this case for almost as long as Mark was in prison about 26, 27 years.
3: Which is very unusual with a wrongful conviction case that you were involved from the beginning. Mark, could you tell us a little bit more about your life in Hartford before all of this began?
5: When I came up here, I was just turned 18. Before this happened, you know, I kind of lived a normal teenage life, you know. I wasn't the best kid, you know. I mean, I got into a little bit of trouble stuff like that, nothing major at all. I think I was 18 going on 19 when I was arrested. But but before my arrest, you know, I would help my dad out with his small business. I would go back and forth to New York. And, you know, it it was kind of short, my, you know, my life before this happened in regards to me relocating to Connecticut. I, I was not here long before I was arrested.
3: But right before you were arrested, you actually met the woman who became the love of your life and yes. and the mother of your third son.
5: Yes, Quentin.
3: John, if you could take me now, you were living in Hartford, Mark, but the crime that you were convicted of committing actually occurred in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is about 27, 28 miles away. You're from Springfield, John, correct? Yes. If you could just kind of paint a picture of Springfield in 1986 for me, particularly around the club where the crime that Mark was convicted of of committing occurred.
6: Well Springfield at that time was a fairly segregated city and at that at the time in the mid 80s there was a lot of drug trafficking and use particularly cocaine there were quite a few homicides compared to the size of the city uh, and the police were typical of the police around this area at that time that is most of the police training was on-the-job training. There were a lot of problems with, in the criminal justice system with the process of discovery. So there was a constant struggle on the defense side trying to get information and evidence that would help the defendant in court. It's safe to say that it wasn't
3: exactly a level playing field. And that is something, particularly with the exculpatory evidence, that very much plays into Mark's case. But let's actually go to the night of the crime. So shortly after 11 p.m. on September 2nd, 1986, in Springfield, Massachusetts, there is a drug deal that goes bad outside the After Five Lounge. And there's four gentlemen involved, Charles Heavy Stokes, his brother David, and they're engaged in a drug deal with two other guys. Anthony Cook and Michael Hostin, and that's when things go wrong apparently they're approached by several unidentified young men who basically ask if they can see what's going on and in that scuffle one of them grabs towards one of the gentleman's chains and that's when a gun's produced shots are fired and very unfortunately an innocent bystander 25-year-old Victoria Seymour is shot and killed and Anthony Cook is shot in the shoulder but survives Now, at that time, Mark, where were you at that exact moment where this unfolds?
5: Earlier that day, I had a root canal. I was kind of in pain all day, and I was, you know, I would go back and forth to pick my wife up from work. Because
3: Maya was working at a beauty salon.
5: Right, right. Probably about, I want to say, five, 10 minutes, maybe 10 minutes away from my father's bar. So the reason I kept going back and forth, because she said she was going to be ready in 15 minutes. So in 15 minutes, I'm thinking we're going home. I'm, my, You know, I'm in pain from a root canal earlier that day. But um, around that time, uh, she finally was ready. I put her in the car. But if I'm not mistaken, around that time, I was actually in a bar and I stopped at a bar because someone suggested take a shot. And, you know, I wasn't a drinker, but I was willing to try anything at that point. I was in excruciating pain. And I went home and laid down.
3: You are almost 30 miles away at that exact time. And you have multiple people who can back you up on that story. So how did they settle upon Mark? How does Mark get dragged into this?
6: It's not clear to us exactly how that happened. Uh, we know that for the, this happened on September 2nd, 1986. And we know that for the next two weeks, uh, they took statements from a lot of different people They never got a consistent description of the assailant. After about two weeks, they developed some information that it was some group of young men from Hartford who came up to Springfield. The Springfield police got in touch with the Hartford police. Then in about a week, uh, a detective from Hartford produced about 30 mugshots, and from those photographs... Somehow, Mark's photo became a, the subject of attention, and it began to. They began to use it prominently. At the same time, uh, they had obtained the Springfield police had obtained three Polaroid photographs.
3: So this was one of the things that I was shouting at my my screen over. So those Polaroid pictures were taken of Mark. Not related to this shooting at all, but they told you, Mark, that there was some kind of traffic infraction based on your motorcycle, correct?
5: It was a maybe like, I want to say like 45 to 50 motorcycles. We drove to New Haven to a um, parade. When we came back, we all lined up in front of my father's bar. Well, there's almost 40 bikes there. And the cop walked across the street and came straight to my bike. He put his hand on the th- on the tank and he said, Oh, this bike is warm. You, you've been riding this bike and you don't have a motorcycle license. Now, he didn't ask me for my license. He didn't ask me my name. He didn't, he didn't know I didn't have a motorcycle license. There's 40 guys there. So apparently he already knew something about me. So he said, I'm going to tow your bike and you're going downtown. They took me downtown. And, and while I was downtown, you know, I had nothing to hide. So he said, you mind if I take a Polaroid of you? Mind if I take a picture of you? I said, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to get a ticket and get out of there. But apparently, this was a part of the whole thing. is kind of blatantly obvious because you don't tow a guy's bike and give him a ticket and take him downtown for driving a motorcycle without a permit. First of all, that's a warning. You know, second of all, he didn't see me driving a motorcycle. He just walked over there. Right.
3: And they clearly didn't pick you out at random. But one of the reasons they might have picked you out were the glasses you were wearing because – the police interviewed two teenage boys who said they were at a Pizza King restaurant on the night of the nightclub shooting. They tell the police that six men came in asking about a gold chain that was stolen at a Run-DMC concert. And the chain they were looking for sounded a lot like the one that Heavy Stokes was wearing. The teenage boys described the men asking about the chain to be about 5'7 with cornrows and gazelle glasses. And, John... If I'm not mistaken, they also said that these men left in a customized blue and gray van with Connecticut plates.
6: That's right, Lauren. The um, These were two 15-year-old middle school students. They reported that they had this encounter, and that does introduce Randy Weaver into the case. And there are some notable things about Randy, and he's probably the the person that the police were actually looking for because he was... While he was not a look-alike, he was he resembled Mark strongly. They are about the same size. He wore he. They were both Run DMC aficionados. They both followed the the or used the Run DMC style of dress and uh, cornrows, uh, braids, gazelle glasses, and Randy had a, a two-tone blue. Chevrolet van with Connecticut license plates. Uh, that van was also spotted, or a van like that was spotted leaving the vicinity of the after five after the shooting. Now, Randy Weaver had was later stopped in Hartford, and his van was impounded. Weaver was a guy who had the uh, had mixed with the Hartford police as a drug dealer earlier in his in his career and. He lived in the same vicinity, and so he he got word that people were looking at him and pointing out that he looked like Mark Shand, who had already been arrested. He changed his appearance. He cut his hair, and he kind of disappeared himself because he figured, as he told us later, the police didn't know who they were after, but they had already grabbed Mark Randy knew that Mark wasn't involved and he was afraid that he would be that he would be arrested because he was there he came to us later and he told us that he was there at the time that the shooting occurred
3: And so that makes it that much more suspicious, Mark, that you're targeted out of one of 40 bikes and you're brought in because you're wearing these gazelles. You match the basic description of Randy Weaver, and now they've taken Polaroid shots of you that then pop up almost as training tools to retrofit, placing you at the scene of the crime. John, will you just dive in a little bit about the way in which photos were used to, in this case, misidentify the person?
6: We have a fairly definite and also kind of sketchy, at the same time, understanding of that. What we do know is that the police had somewhere between 30 and 40 photos that they were using. But what we also know is that they were so disorganized, that is, not deliberately disorganized, but just not professionally trained. They were not well coordinated. So they would, guys would go, police officers would go out on their own shift and take photographs with them, show, find witnesses, take statements, show the photographs, and not make good records either of what photographs they were showing what combinations we call them arrays, but they didn't do that systematically. And they, in particular, they didn't make a record of negative responses. They would not write that down because that didn't help their case. At this point, they were not really investigating as much as they were putting together a case against Mark Shand.
3: So tunnel vision had definitely set in.
6: Yes. And uh, since they weren't keeping good records, their work could be adjusted as, they, as their information developed and as they moved along. So when they, if they met, had, had an unsatisfactory interview or an unsatisfactory showing with a witness, they didn't need to deal with that because they didn't necessarily keep a record of it and they could go back to that witness later with a different set of photographs and come up with an identification.
3: Which led to your arrest, Mark? Can you take me to the exact day and time of your arrest and how that went down?
5: That day, I uh, stopped by to talk to my dad. He was in the bar doing various things, and I spoke with him a little bit. I went upstairs to talk to my sister. Not doing nothing in particularly. One guy drove by and he told me. He says, "You know, they call me Cash. It's my nickname." And he said, "Cash, listen." I don't know why the cops keep looking at you. They drive back and forth looking at you. I said, okay, whatever. So I saw them go this way. I, You know, I'm talking or whatever to someone, and the cop car comes back this way, and it stops. And, it, it you know, they, they uh, an officer got out, and he said, are you Mark Shannon? I said, yeah. You know, he says, uh, you under arrest for murder. I was like, what? And he pulled out his handcuffs. And a couple of people heard it, like, you know, people thought like we was being punked or something, or, you know, it was a TV show. Nobody thought it was serious. I didn't. You know, I really thought it was a joke. I said, what did you say? He said, you're under arrest for murder.
3: Well, tell me tell me about the interrogation that took place.
5: Well, it, it wasn't much of an interrogation. It was blatantly obvious that the Harford cops didn't know much of what's going on. You know, you could tell it was a thing where they, they was just told, like, you know, some youth from here, and they went and snatched me, and... I could see that they were just holding me and waiting and, and then um a district attorney by the name of Francis Bloom and two officers came in and it wasn't much of an interrogation you know he told me stuff like uh, I know you was in Springfield and in Europe you're a no good murdering piece of shit and I'm going to put you away and and you know just it was it's, it's a little foggy now but he was basically telling me he wasn't asking me anything he's basically telling me he knew I did it and I'm gonna get you for murder. And why'd you come up to Springfield? And I said, I've never been to Springfield. He called me a liar and you know, that sort of thing. So it it wasn't an interrogation per se. They didn't sit me down and say, had you ever been to Springfield? Do you own a van? Did you? None of none, it wasn't that kind of thing. It was more accusatory. You know, he was screaming at me. I don't know if it was for effect or not. And I think he was a little flustered that I wasn't, you know, flustered. I think that bothered him a little because quite frankly, I wasn't flustered because I know I didn't kill anybody. So I'm thinking, this is gonna blow over. Like, maybe they'll come and be like, Mark, you know, we made a mistake. Maybe they'll get me up there. And some people look at me back, that's not the guy. And I'll be home tomorrow, I'll be out tomorrow. And I didn't come home for three
2: decades.
1: Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O.
2: Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice.
0: At UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station, with cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world. To bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure starts. Learn more at ucsd.edu.
3: So you're arrested, you're in jail, and then at some point a lineup is suggested and you say, let's do it. You know, the lineup is presented to Heavy Stokes, who was one of the guys involved in the cocaine deal. Tell me about that lineup, Mark.
5: So the lineup was really suggestive and it was um, it was beyond suggestive. John probably could speak to it better than I can. But within this lineup, it was myself, it was a, an officer that had previously Arrested the guy that was doing the lineup. Uh, one of them s- saved his life by sticking his finger in a bullet hole. So he knew that guy. It was another guy who grew up with him, another guy who he knew from the neighborhood, and there was me. So it was quite obviously, you know, it was quite obvious who he was supposed to point out. I mean, he knew the cop didn't come from Harford and kill anyone. He knew the other cop who stuck his finger in his bullet hole didn't do it. He knew the guy he knew from the neighborhood didn't do it, you know. So The lineup was really suggestive, and uh, you know, I guess I was the only guy in there that could have been, you know, as as far in his mind could have been responsible for it.
3: So exactly that—that was another point where I'm screaming at my screen. You're the only guy in that lineup that the person who's supposed to identify you doesn't know.
6: Right, exactly. That's right. The lineup was a staged lineup. It was designed to produce an identification of Mark. The second thing that was at work here is. The practice of rewarding witnesses, nobody else gets to do that. We, the rest of us have to get our witnesses uh, the honest way. That is, we want you to tell you, tell us what you know. We want you to testify to what you know. And if you do that, well, all we can do is say thank you. The police and the prosecutors can say to a witness, you are facing charges in another case if you testify for us in this case, we'll give you a break on the prosecution we have against you in that other case. So that witness is compromised by that offer of leniency in exchange for testimony. That's a common standard practice around the United States, and it is a terrible problem.
3: And that definitely um, was on display in the trial because there were six witnesses who testified against you, and they all had incentive to identify you in one form or another. Take me to the trial, John. I know that, Linda, your partner was actually at the trial at, at some point. How would you, give me a brief synopsis of the trial. How would you categorize it?
6: As we've noted, there were six uh, eyewitnesses who claimed that they were at the after five and saw these this brief flurry of events. It was a pretty straightforward case in that sense. The big handicap to the defense was that they were not, Roy Anderson was not aware of silent arrangements for testimony. For example, not only Heavy Stokes, who was one of the victims, but Anthony Cook, who was also a victim, that is, he was shot, and his shooting was one of the charges that Mark was tried on. Both of them had to be bribed. They had to be rewarded to to testify. The victims wouldn't testify without a deal. That's how thoroughly corrupt this trial was.
3: So the trial takes place between November 9th and 20th in 1987, and the prosecutor is the assistant district attorney, Francis Bloom, who has a rather spotty history um, in terms of protocol. You're going into trial knowing that there is no physical evidence linking you to any of the crimes that took place on September 2nd, 1986, because you were 30 miles away at the time. Did you go into trial fairly confident?
5: Yeah. I, I kind of thought that, you know, it'll come out, you know, it'll all come out in the wash and and, and one of the jurors, two of the jurors, someone will judge it. Someone will see that this is not jiving. It's not, you know, it's not coming together.
3: But Mark, you had an alibi that was confirmed by seven people.
5: Yeah. That should have been convincing as well. <laughs> yeah, you, you're right.
3: You had a dental procedure that was done that day. You weren't up for clubbing that night. You were driving a half an hour. So how does that fall apart in the courtroom?
6: First of all, eyewitness testimony is special, a special kind of testimony. The jurors are inclined to look at them sympathetically and expect them to know the truth. That can be very convincing. Just one person six of them all saying the same thing. That's powerful evidence.
3: But Mark has seven eyewitnesses who back up his alibi. How does that fall apart in court?
6: There are two basic problems with an alibi. Usually, your alibi witnesses are friends or family. Okay, so one of Mark's problems was that he was not involved in this crime. Therefore, he couldn't say when it happened or what he was doing, where it was, and so forth. This happened on September 2nd, 1986. Mark was arrested October 29th. So it was almost two full months before Mark is aware that he's uh, even a suspect. And what do they do? They notify the people that they were with to let them know that there's a problem that they need help with. And so Maya is calling her sisters and uh, other family members and saying, do you remember September 2nd? Do you remember what we were doing? And so they talk about what they were doing. And they all discuss it and they get it down and then they go tell the lawyer. Well, in the trial, after they've given their testimony, the cross-examination goes something like this. When Maya's cross-examined, the prosecutor says, so, When you found out, when when Mark was charged, you contacted all of these witnesses, didn't you? Yes. And you told them when this happened? Yes, I did. And you all discussed your testimony, didn't you? Yes. And you all decided that you had an alibi for Mark, didn't you? Yes. Okay? And that's all true. But it sounds like they all got together and cooked up a story for him.
3: Okay, so Mark, take me to the moment when the verdict is decided.
6: Well, uh, you
5: know, in true dramatic fashion, they asked me to stand. They said, Mark Shan, please stand. And um, they read the verdict. They said, um, you know, basically guilty on all counts. And I can recall distinctively, I almost didn't hear anything else after that but my mother's scream. You know what I mean? Um,
3: Mm. Do you remember turning was was Maya in the courtroom when they announced the verdict?
5: My whole family, yeah, my whole family's in the courtroom i i, I kind of couldn't turn around to him because I didn't want to look at my mother i I heard her screams and it bothered me so much I didn't want to look at her on top of hearing her, you know, so I just stared straight ahead um I just heard him screaming, and i I glanced back one time and it was kind of holding my mom up and I just started looking straight ahead again. I I, I didn't want to look back at her, you know. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's what I remember most and the judge was explaining to me what had just happened and do I understand what had just happened and, um, yeah. You know, at that moment when I, when I, went myself I kind of really came to the realization that I was excuse my French but I was fucked <laughs> you know I really came to the conclusion like wow you know this is the culmination of what the fuck was going on in the back back scenes of whatever the hell Bloom had going on but I kept saying to myself like they really convicted me of this crime I, I just couldn't believe it I, you know I, I, I had to like come to terms with that you know, and that took me literally 27 years to come to terms with that. You know, I never really like, you know, said, OK, all right, you're convicted. That never happened ever. Literally every day, every moment for 27 years, I was in disbelief of what had happened. I really
6: was.
1: Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O.
2: Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice.
0: UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station, with cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world. To bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure starts. Learn more at UCSD.edu.
3: So, you end up serving 27 years in prison. And meanwhile, Maya is at home and she never gives up on you. Tell me about your support system while you were inside and how Maya created a home for your three sons.
5: Well, oh my gosh, that's, that's immeasurable. I mean, f- right from the beginning, she supported me. She, You know, she came in s- to see me in jail. Uh, she would get my other two sons from previous relationships and made sure they got to meet each other and knew each other and grew up together steadfast and she just she was there for me the entire time I you know I would see her like every week unless it was like a snowstorm or a death in the family I want to say it was like a hour and a half to our ride sometime but nothing would stop her she you know uh she kept my family together she supported me she did what she could financially you know we we was scrape up money to pay investigators and attorneys and, you know, she was there when I was arrested and she was there the day I stepped foot out of there. So, you know, I can't say enough about what she did.
3: Um, John, do you want to walk me through the post conviction litigation?
6: We had information early on about Randy Weaver and Tracy Fisher in particular those two witnesses, those two men were being talked about and were saying things that implicated them and exonerated Mark. We couldn't find Randy Weaver. We found Tracy Fisher because he was in prison. We believed that Weaver and and Fisher were key uh, witnesses in Mark's case, but they were We couldn't get any evidence from them. We were in the position now where we were doing the appeal of Mark's conviction, saying that the trial was unfair, but we were also investigating to try to discover additional evidence to show that he was not guilty. That was the time when the falsified report surfaced, the two-page report that showed that Charles Stokes had described someone who could not possibly have been Mark. That was on the second page of a two-page document that had been altered to look like a one-page document. So you
3: have this information that was hidden from Mark's original defense
6: attorney. What did you do next? So we went back to the trial judge, Judge Murphy, and Judge Murphy laughed it off. He said, well, I don't understand why the police did this, but the defense had all that information anyway which was just false and that's the way the motion for the new trial went we lost that and then we appealed of course each time we got a ruling like that we had to go i went and met with mark and had to explain to him how we had lost so that by that time by the time we finished that litigation it was 1995 i had to say to mark This is it. This is the last thing. There's nothing left to do. You're you're stuck here, and we both. I I remember we we held hands and cried. Mark said to me, John, I'm not giving up. This I'm not. I do not accept this. There's got to be some way. I'm not giving up. And I said, uh, Mark, there's only one thing that's going to get you out of here. It's going to be new evidence. We have to get new evidence. And it looked really, really bleak uh, until Jim McCloskey and Centurion Ministries finally said, we're going to take the case. Jim McCloskey talked Randy Weaver into coming in and making sworn statements that implicated him. That is, Randy Weaver was willing to say, I was there at the after five when the shooting occurred, and I know Mark Shand, and he wasn't there.
5: Centurion took a while to, to come full circle and accept my case. They didn't accept it initially, you know, for whatever reason. Maybe they weren't fully convinced. I mean, they're a reputable organization and, and their name carries a lot of weight. So I understand how they have to be 100% convinced of your innocence before they take your case. And, and as I mentioned, they did their due diligence, investigated the case before they literally told me, we're accept, officially accepting your case. And from the time they did that, to the time I was out was a very short period of time, I think. I, You know, I could be wrong in regards to the timeframe and how these things go, but from the day they accepted my case, I think I was out two years later.
3: There was also, though, a sense of urgency because take me to the medical crisis you had. What year was it and and what happened?
5: In 2008, I, I had an uh, aneurysm, a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is a bleeding of the brain. I was sitting there and I, I thought it was a it was like an instant headache, almost like someone just hit me in the head with a hammer. Like, it was instant. Uh, a couple of guys that always come when the count clear in prison and ask me, do I want to play chess? It was three of us. We would play whoever lose, get up, and we'd just play all day and drink coffee and talk about sports and play chess. And we did that often. And they came to my door and said, you coming out to play chess? And I said, give me a minute. And I had a headache. So they came back 15 minutes like, come on, where you at? Like, we, you know, he's getting ready to lose this game. Come on, you're next. The third time they came back to the cell to ask me to come, I didn't understand their words. So I was acutely aware something was really screwed up. And I picked myself up and I walked to the officer's station and I couldn't talk. And from what they say, my pupils were dilating and they, you know, my eyes were rolling up my head. I couldn't answer no questions. The shift commander came in and he said, this guy is fucked. Something ain't right. He, He don't even know his own name. And I woke up in the hospital and I found out it was a, an aneurysm and I almost died in prison. And the doctor came in and was explaining to me, I could hear him, but I couldn't respond that I had an aneurysm and they was going to take me downstairs and try to tie it off and stop the bleeding. And he, he, you know, he was brutally honest with me. He said, Mark, almost 70% of the people that have these don't live through them. So it's a good chance you may not come upstairs from this. He said, he, he directed the officers. He said, you want to take some phone numbers and call his family members immediately because he may not come upstairs. And I told him to call those numbers. I don't remember him doing it. And then I asked him for a piece of paper and he gave me an envelope and I wrote on the paper, um, <laughs> oh, wait am oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I wrote, I wrote on the paper, Uh. I I just wrote down, please help me. And I told him to get that paper to Jim McCloskey. Cause I, I I I could really remember like thinking to myself, like, fuck, I'm gonna die in here for a crime I didn't do. Like, never mind going through this, but I'm literally about to die in prison for a crime I didn't commit. And I could just recall begging him to get that envelope to to Jim McCloskey. And um uh I can remember waking up with just like twenty people in the room, just kissing me and crying and hugging me, and the doctor kind of standing there and waiting for him and explaining to him that it's a good chance I may not come back upstairs, and explaining to them, you know, what a subarachnoid hemorrhage was. And he said he was going to take me downstairs, and I'm listening and everyone's was crying, and they they you know they kind of just whisked me downstairs, and um, you know, I made I made it through that, but. Jim McCloskey would later say that that was kind of the catalyst for them to, like, say, like, we got to get this guy the fuck out of here. You know, I, I don't know if they particularly skipped any cases because of that, but they really started, you know, really accepting my cases and started to work it a little more, I would say, because of that, because he explained to me. By that time, they was fully convinced of my innocence, and they didn't want to see me die in prison for a crime I didn't commit. Never mind spending the rest of my life in prison. So I think they worked a little harder on my case, you know, than they normally would have. The letter got to him, and um, he he has it framed, and he has it in his office now, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I think in my in my whole ordeal, the the two things that stick out to me most was that. And my mom screaming in court. Like those are two things. I they literally flash through my mind every fucking day, every day. One of the two of those flash through my mind. You know, sometimes once, twice a week or something. I would just I'll be in the car by myself, and I'll just ball out and cry like a baby. And tears, my shirt will be wet, and I just cry about. You know, I say shit like, "What the hell did they do to me? They took a third of my life," and you know, and I just wipe my face and go on about my day. And, and it still happens you know i don't i don't know if you can say it like, i got feel sorry for myself i don't know what it is but every now and then it still hits me and and i'm waiting for that to dissipate and stop but it hasn't stopped yet so you know I'm, i i deal with it you know i deal with it i, I can't say i got over it yet I, I couldn't say that to you and be telling the truth because i didn't
3: i i can't imagine mark it's it's not just something that you get over. I mean, you had some extremely harrowing experiences. But eventually, you did get out of prison, and you were exonerated. The work of Centurion and your lawyer, John Thompson, all their investigative work paid off, and the case was dismissed. That must have been such a happy day. Can you tell me what it was like when the judge finally said that you were free to go um do you remember the
5: exact words he used he kept kind of short he said you're free to go (laughs) he said you're free to go I didn't believe it I'm looking at John and then like what the hell did he just say like I really couldn't believe he said that and you know it, it 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 kind of washed over me but you know uh I remember my whole body just I had pins and needles you know on my skin like and he said you're free to go, and everybody went crazy again, just like they did 27 years before, but for a different reason this time. You know, he had to calm the court down again, and John's trying to explain to me like, you know, you can go home. <laughs> it's like John had to explain to me like I was a three year old. I'm like, what the hell just happened? Like he said you can go, and um, yeah, I walked out of the courtroom a free man. Mm,
3: and at the at the point you were released, you had four grandkids, correct? And you had met them all while you were in while you were in prison.
5: Yeah, they was all brought to me as infants. Yeah. Uh, little babies, yeah. And uh I had four when I got I have seven now.
3: So take me to your life today and the family that you reconnected and reunited with that, that Maya had really kept together while you were in prison.
5: I reconnected with my entire family and um my immediate family, I see every day if I can. You know, I try to go see my grandkids every single day. It's hard because I got a lot going on, but, you know, we do the regular stuff, you know, get together for Sunday dinner and all that kind of stuff. I have them over the house. And, um, you know, when I went in, I had um, three sons. They were literally 2-1, and Quentin was almost a newborn. And um, when I got out, they were 29, 30, and 31, so we had a lot of reconnecting to do and, and we done that. We're good. We're in a good place. And, um, you know, I just been, I've been really busy. I keep creating problems for myself. Like, you know, I, I you know, I watch my father with small business, you know, try to be an entrepreneur. I'm kind of following his footsteps. So every time I start a little project and it it's off and running and it's, I find another issue for myself. So, you know, I, I, um, my, my first business was a smoothie shop. I uh opened a smoothie shop it's been open for 7 years now and um I'm I currently have a a coach store in in a major mall in Connecticut and I'm opening my second smoothie shop as well so I'm constantly you know busy and I I literally don't have a moment to breathe but I I take that over the 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 previous 27 years any day
3: all right, we are getting to the end of our interview here, and I want to thank you so much for being here and for sharing your stories. You know, something we like to do is close this show um, by giving the last word to our guest. And Mark, you have been through so much, and you have had such an amazing life experience. It would be my honor if you would be willing to share your closing argument with us.
5: My story is you know as bad as it is, it's it's not the end of this thing. What happened to me, and 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 how it happened to me, and the way it was allowed to happen to me, is a culture. What Francis Bloom did is a culture. It's accepted all the way to the top. And I mean, you know, you got judges overlooking cases, overlooking trials. They see this stuff. They know something doesn't jive and they oversee the trial and watch it happen. Right. This is a culture until and unless we start to address it, until and unless district attorneys are held accountable for knowingly, wrongfully getting a person convicted and watching them do three decades in jail, knowing that their case wasn't a righteous case until they're literally put in handcuffs for that. Until and unless that happens, this is going to happen a lot more.
3: Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your guest host, Lauren Bright Pacheco. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wardus. Our senior producer this episode is Jackie Polly, and our producers are Lila Robinson and Jeff Clyburn. Our editor is Roxandra Guidi. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can find me online at Lauren Bright Pacheco, and you can find my podcasts, Murder in Oregon and Murder in Illinois, wherever you listen to podcasts. And my latest, Murder in Miami, is out this January. Wrongful Conviction is a production of LAVA for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company number 1 I hope you enjoyed this episode of Wrongful Conviction as regular listeners will know the show is usually hosted by Jason Flom but this fall he invited an amazing group of guest hosts to bring their own talents and perspectives to the interview I am honored to be closing out this season, which has included hosts like Ear Hustle's Erlon Woods, legal experts Chris Fabricant and Laura Nyrider, author Gilbert King, and exonerees Patrick Persley and Jimmy Dennis. You can listen to all 15 guest-hosted episodes in the Wrongful Conviction podcast feed. Starting January 9th, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Maggie Freeling is back for a second season. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling features heartbreaking and inspiring stories of people who have been incarcerated for crimes they didn't commit, told in Maggie's unique personal style. Season two will shine a light on cases of wrongfully convicted women, a cause that Maggie is passionate about and one that doesn't get the attention it deserves. This is a must-listen show for anyone interested in the life. Life impact of the criminal justice system. Listen every Monday in the Wrongful Conviction podcast feed starting January 9th.